You could say that the March primaries in St. Louis marked a watershed moment in South St. Louis politics. Perhaps the best evidence to this statement is Dan Gunther's victory in the Ninth Ward Aldermanic race. The Democrat joins us next to talk about the winds of change blowing through St. Louis. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens. Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studios in St. Louis is... Colleague Joe Manis. And introducing, for the first time to our public radio audience, the likely new alderman for the Ninth Ward of St. Louis. Yes, uh, Dan Gunther. Um, I guess technically I am the Democratic nominee at the moment. Yes, hence the reason I said likely. You do have a Green Party candidate, but... As I mean, we, were, we were talking about before, the Green Party has not performed particularly well. So it's very likely that you're going to be joining the board in a month and a half, month or so? Yeah, the, uh, the general election is April 4th. And then uh, from what I've heard, the end of April will be the uh, swearing in and uh, May will kick things off. So we just want to thank you for coming in today. You were the only person to unseat an incumbent in the March Seventh election? Was it March seventh? Yeah, yeah March I know. 7th. It just seems. It seems like it was <laughs> like ten years ago at this point. But yeah. and we're and we're going to have more of the newbies on the on the from the board of aldermen on in the next weeks and months. But we wanted to bring the person who actually unseated an incumbent on first. I guess that when you unseat an incumbent, you get first crack at politically speaking. So I, I appreciate that. That's uh, we have a lot of we have a whole new class of uh, aldermen coming in. Um, but I'm proud to be uh, the uh, representative of the ninth ward and uh, took on an 18-year incumbent, and um, so we had a very successful run. Yeah, I mean, this is the largest um, new freshman class in the Board of Aldermen over 20 years. So, so before we ask you about your life story and any issues, for, for our listeners, what are the boundaries of the Ninth Ward, and what neighborhoods does it include? Um, so the Ninth Ward, uh, it almost looks like a, a nine, uh, almost. Um, so on the north side of the Ninth Ward, uh, I have all of Benton Park West neighborhood. Um, so the boundaries of that are Gravoy, Cherokee Street, and Jefferson. And then if you head east, then I have uh, all of the Benton Park neighborhood, um, which is where I live in Benton Park. Um, Benton Park is uh, roughly it's uh, Jefferson, Gravoy, 55, and Cherokee. Um, I have a little bit of McKinley Heights neighborhood, um, a part of the Sular neighborhood, from Sydney Street South, and then the ward itself actually wraps uh, all the way down the riverfront between 55 and the riverfront down to a neighborhood called Mount Pleasant, uh, which that's kind of our southern boundaries. So we actually... um, if, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier, you talked about Kara Spencer in the 20th Ward. The 9th Ward actually wraps around uh, three edges of the 20th Ward. And and the other interesting thing is, I and this has been the way in the past, isn't Cherokee Street, like the actual street, is the boundary line? So one side is the 9th Ward and the other is the 20th Ward? Or is that changed since redistricting? 
Um, so uh, that's that's roughly correct. Um, so on uh, from Jefferson Avenue on the west side uh, of Cherokee Street, Ninth uh, Ward is on the north side of Cherokee, and Twentieth Ward is on the south side. Uh, but if you go to the east side of Jefferson Avenue, the Ninth Ward is on both sides. So we we have uh, the Benton Park neighborhood on the north, and then we have the Marine Villa neighborhood on the south. Yes. And yeah. I, yeah. Actually, I used to live. I mean, this is way long ago, and actually at this point, it was in the Tenth Ward. Yep. Uh, before mm-hmm. the 20th got moved down there, which mm-hmm. is another drama in itself. Yeah. But, yeah, because I lived on Kosciuszko Street right okay. there overlooking the highway. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that you mentioned the neighborhoods because one of my pet peeves is Cherokee Street being described as a neighborhood. Uh-huh. It's actually a commercial thoroughfare Correct. that cuts through four separate neighborhoods. Correct. And right. I know that sounds like a linguistic nitpicking thing, but I, I, I don't want to – you know, understate that fact because there are people that live in these neighborhoods that may not be close to Cherokee Street, but it's still an important yeah. element of, of, of those neighborhoods. So. Yeah, and we uh, a lot of people down there, we do refer to it as the Cherokee neighborhoods because there are, there are like you said, four different neighborhoods that surround uh, Cherokee Street and are part of it. So uh, we try to come together um, for, you know, some of the uh, activities and events that we do on Cherokee Street as, uh, you know, four neighborhoods working together. So tell me a little bit about yourself, your involvement in the community, and, and why you decided to jump into electoral politics. Um, well, a little bit about myself. Uh, so I moved to the Benton Park neighborhood uh, roughly 15 years ago. Um, I moved down there um, really as uh, came in as a uh, rehabber, uh, restoring historic homes. Um, did that for a number of years until uh, right around the, um, the the Great Recession happened, and, and a lot of uh, people started getting out of um, buying properties and restoring them. Um, so at that time, I kind of, uh, like a lot of other people in in the you know building industries, uh, I kind of took another look at what I wanted to do. Um, I had. Uh, when I first moved to the neighborhood, I got really involved with the Benton Park Neighborhood Association. Um, Benton Park is the second oldest park in the city of St. Louis. Um, it was a, a Victorian strolling park when it was created 150 years ago. Um, I really fell in love with the park, and I wanted to do what I could uh, as a citizen um, to help uh, uh, really kind of restore the park. Um, I have a, a really kind of a, a, a deep respect for public spaces. Um, I think that uh, public spaces uh, are, are areas where we can really break down some um, not only, you know, racial separations, but socioeconomic separations, um, age uh, separations. So um, I see parks as a place uh, where we can really all get together um, and find common values and, and learn how to, to talk to each other and work together. So, um, so when I moved in the neighborhood, um, I got really involved. I started a fundraising committee for our neighborhood association. Um, I uh, am on. I'm the parks chairman for our neighborhood association uh, for. I think almost 30 years, um, a great friend of mine, um, Charles Hooker, uh, who's a horticulturalist, he was the parks chairman, and he kind of took me under his wing, um, and I ended up working with him quite a bit in horticulture. Um, so I learned a lot about uh, plants, learned a lot about um, uh, kind of restoring uh, some of the historic aspects of the park. Um, and then uh, I would say a, a number of years ago, um, well, probably three to four years ago, uh, from and kind of the community organizer aspect, uh, a number of people on around Cherokee and the neighborhoods around Cherokee 
um, decided that we needed to maybe uh, take a look at our local politics um, as a way to uh, get some new ideas um, and some 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 of the issues that uh, we were concerned about um, get them into City Hall. So. Uh, um, almost two and a half years ago, I guess, uh, I started working on Kara Spencer's campaign. Mm-hmm. So I was a part of her campaign. Um, we were really excited for her win. And then I guess that was kind of what led to um, the following, you know, a couple of years of, uh, of really um, pushing new ideas in politics. Um, so besides working on Kara, um, then I uh, was a, a part of the campaign for our Ninth Ward Democratic Committee Man and Committee Woman, um, which uh, Sarah Johnson, our new Ninth Ward Committee Woman, she actually beat uh, Pat Ortman, who was a 22-year incumbent. Um, and so that was a, a big jump. Then when I got involved um, a year ago, January, um, I, I started working on the Bruce Franks campaign um, for state rep. Um, and then I guess just kind of seeing all of those um, campaigns come together, I just uh, thought, you know, this is a good time for me to put my hat in the ring. And, and I knew it was going to be a tough challenge, and it was. Um, but I think the, uh, the area is definitely just ready for um, some new leadership in the city of St. Louis. What, what do you see as your top issue during the campaign and going forward? Well, um, there's it's, it's hard to put a finger on a one top issue um, because I think there are so many things that, that we need to work on. Um, um, kind of adding to a little bit more about my background, uh, you know, from, from when I uh, was working with the parks and kind of restoring the parks, that led to a uh, position in the mayor's office. And uh, I worked in the Office of Sustainability um, for the mayor's office. And then that led to uh, when Mayor Slade decided not to run again, the program that I was working on, we moved to Brightside St. Louis, or uh, which sometimes is called Operation Brightside or Brightside and, and, and St. Louis. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's kind of the agency that does a lot of beautification work. It cleans up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Things yep. like that. Yeah, yep. and this goes back to the Shamel administration. Yep, it was. Uh, yeah, it was started by the Shamel administration. Um, yeah, so his I, their... sister Lou Green used to be involved yep. in that. Yep, and uh, and then Lou Green's daughter Mary Lou Green is uh, now running it. So, and I, they're over thirty years old. Uh, the the organization itself. So it is the kind of the cleaning and greening. Um, uh, group of the city of St. Louis. And that is really where, um, from working in the sustainability office and working with um, Brightside, that I I can kind of say that that's one of my main issues. It's one of my uh, top priorities. Now, um, you know, a lot of people... I've knocked on a lot of doors during this campaign, and and it seems like, you know, the number one issue is definitely uh, crime and safety in neighborhoods. Um, However, what we were talking about and what we were um, kind of professing when when we were working in the sustainability office is how um, safety, it really does tie to uh, cleaner neighborhoods and and, um, community gardens where neighbors get together and they talk about uh, issues and and open dialogue. So so I see the um, kind of some greening initiatives for the city of St. Lewis, um, kind of taking respect, taking pride in our neighborhoods as uh, um, being my top priority, but it leads to many other things. It leads to economic development, it leads to safety, it leads to better education uh, for, for students. So I see environmental issues as uh, something that I can really um, speak about and, and try to push uh, when it comes to city politics. Now, one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that the 9th and the 20th Ward uh, aldermen, since they are so close together and in some cases like right next to each other, their their working relationship is, is really, really key for that mm-hmm. entire area. 
Um, there was seemingly some differences of opinion between Craig Schmidt, who lost to Kara Spencer, and Ken Ortman. Mm-hmm. It seemed like there was differences of opinion between Kara Spencer and Ken Ortman on a lot of things. How do you see your working relationship with Alderman Spencer going into the future? Because it does seem like you two are pretty allied. She endorsed your campaign. Mm-hmm. What do you think that's going to mean for that entire part of Southeast St. Louis? Well, I, I think it's a huge win for the entire area um, because uh, we do have um, two older people that are, are aldermen that are um, working together um, daily. You know, um, um, I've, I've been working, you know, well before Kara ran for office. Um, I was working with her. She worked on Cherokee Street and, and for Nebula um, and was part of kind of the uh, small business revitalization of that neighborhood. Um, so I think that it's a uh, it's it's a great opportunity for us to uh, really um, have two older people that are that are working on uh you know, causes that are going to affect um, the the entire area. Um, you know, there's uh, working on Bruce's campaign. He had a um, he had a saying that uh, you know, Gravway Park isn't good, if, or Benton Park isn't good if Gravway Park isn't right. good, or, or Lafayette Square isn't good if, if Town Square isn't good. So um, so I think that you know that leads us to where the areas that I'm representing, um, we do have a lot of challenges, uh, uh, especially in the southern areas and in the Benton Park West and the Mount Pleasant areas with vacancies, with crime, with abandoned buildings. Um, So I think that, uh, you know, those issues are the very same issues that Kara's going to be working on when it comes to Gravway Park and some of the areas in Dutchtown, the areas that she represents. So um, I think it's a great great win for, for the entire region there. Um, because we have uh, two people that um, work together well, um, we don't always agree on everything, but but um, but we actually you know respect each other and uh, and we'll we'll work together for the the good of the people down there. So. And, and that was going to be my next question because I did a decent amount of reporting on the development of, of the Cherokee Street uh, business thoroughfare, especially compared to the neighborhoods. And one mm-hmm. of the things that I learned through my reporting is the recession really, really hurt those neighborhoods, probably more than many St. Louis neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And vacancy, as you mentioned, is a big problem, getting Mm -hmm. people to either turn those those abandoned buildings into apartments or or, or homes or Mm -hmm. single family homes or double family homes is a huge challenge. Is that going to be one of your big challenges going on is is kind of trying to reduce the, the vacancy in those parts of your ward and just making the entire ward more economically vibrant and not just parts of it, essentially. Yeah, that's that's absolutely one of our biggest challenges. And, uh, you know, from being in the, the building industry or the building uh, trades pre-recession, um, we kind of saw what happened where a lot of, uh, a lot of um, outside investors were coming in, they were buying up properties. Um, and then when those areas um, are, you know, those companies uh, end up going bankrupt or ended up uh, losing their properties through foreclosures, then all of a sudden we saw banks kind of packaging uh, houses together, packaging large parcels yeah. of houses together. And, and this is a problem throughout the city, um, but it's definitely a problem in those areas because a lot of people saw the momentum that was happening in Benton Park. And so then they started buying, you know, blocks and blocks around the, uh, that area. Um, and then when they got foreclosed on, then the banks would package those sell them to more investors. So, you know, one of the biggest issues we have right now is that, uh, you know, a lot of people think that vacancies is just a city problem, but there's
there's so many of these properties that are privately owned that um, we're going to have to figure out a way to um, be able to run down companies that might be in New York or California. They're just holding properties and they don't know how much of an impact this is making on our neighborhoods. Um, so that's something that you know I, I look forward to as uh, quite a challenge, but it's something that we have to take on uh, when it comes to rebuilding our neighborhoods. We have to be able to um, have some sort of way to um, go after those uh, out-of-state uh, investors and uh, and make sure that they are uh, held accountable for the the um, I guess the, the way that their properties are upkept. So, so w- when the banks are packaging these properties and then reselling them to other investors, so are we talking like 10, 15, or oh, yeah. 5, 20? 10, I mean, just... 20, 30, 50. Um, really? I, okay. Yeah. And so like one investment group that could be from New York or California mm-hmm. or somewhere else would end up with, let's say, 30 or 40 30 property. Mm-hmm. Now, are they usually contingent or are they just spot spotty? I mean, are they... Contiguous. So, contiguous, or are they usually yeah. all over the place? Oh, they're all over the place. Um, yep, and uh, they're all over the place, but they're all over the place in certain neighborhoods. So um, so all over the place in areas like Gravway Park or, or Dutchtown, um, those areas. So so how do you get, like, the the investor in this case, let's just get 30 or 40 properties, and they might not even know which ones they have. I mean, because mm-hmm. they bought them because they were a block that the bank was offering at a good price. Um so is your aim to get them to break them off so then you can sell them off to individual people who would rehab individual ones? And how do you go about doing that? Well, um, that is, you know, it, it will be uh, a goal, but, you know, it will also be a challenge that um, to try to figure out a way to let these uh, investment groups know that, um, you know, there are people that are willing to buy individual properties. Um, and, and there's a, you know, this is one of the things that there's a lot of discussion just throughout the city right now. Um, I know just last night I was at an event for um, Slaco, who is pushing this Proposition NS, um, which has to do with uh, with actually an increase, a tax increase to be able to um, put some money to stabilize city-owned properties. But I think um, just this conversation just starting to go right now and starting to get different organizations behind the fact that vacancy is such an issue within our city that um, that then hopefully the uh, uh, legislators and hopefully our, our government will be able to find ways to, um, to really kind of uh, hold these developers' uh, feet to the fire when it comes to um, having to go ahead and break off. But I, I do know that, you know, from talking to um, Problem Properties uh, people uh, in the city and, and a lot of our, you know, SLDC and, and a lot of the um, groups that we already have, a lot of them say that it, it is a problem trying to even find who owns these uh, buildings when they have LLCs or they have, um, you know, kind of shadow names uh, without real contact information. So so it is going to be a challenge, um, but it's something that I think that we need to uh, be able to address and and, uh, and find a way that, that we can make um, these, these uh, developers uh, accountable um, to start letting their properties either go or start putting the money into them to fix them up. So, so the, the other major thing that's going to be on the ballot, there's like six different initiatives. So and I don't yeah. I want I don't want to say that one isn't major or one is, but the, the the two propositions, one would be a sales tax increase primarily for Metrolink as well as a number of other things. The other mm-hmm. one would use the increase in the use tax to build a soccer stadium. Now, I know that mass transportation has been a, a, a long-running conversation in the city of St. Louis, mm-hmm. but I, I do sense there is some easiness, uneasiness in voting for both of these initiatives. One, because there's there's not a sh- assurance that it's going to be enough to expand mm-hmm. Metrolink that much. 
and especially with the second one, there just does seem to be some opposition to publicly funding sports stadiums. So, yeah. you know, there are probably some Ninth Ward people listening right now. I hope so. I, I would <laughs> hope so. What What are kind of your thoughts about those initiatives and just more generally about expanding mass transportation and maybe putting funding or maybe not putting funding towards stadiums? Um, so the first one, the, uh, the public transportation. So uh, I do not uh, drive a car around the city. Um, I ride a bicycle or I take the bus or Metrolink everywhere. Um, so public transit is something that's very important to me. Um, I've been, I'm, I'm still personally, I'm still uh, reading into the details of Prop 1. Um, so from the things I've read so far, half of the tax increase, roughly 10 to $12 million a year, is going to be going towards the public transit. Um, having conversations with people about it, uh, a lot of people that are on the, the no side say, oh, well, that's that's not going to get us anywhere. That's not going to build anything. It's, it's just going to be another study. Um, but I've from having more conversations recently, um, I've heard a number of people that are saying that um, that this amount of money that we're increasing will be able to provide the money for like the feasibility studies and and for the engineering reports and and the the first steps that need to be done before we actually break ground. Um, but they, um, you know, even. Um, uh, Tashara and the treasurer's office put a million dollars into the studies of this program, our studies of how to make this feasible. So um, I think that there is momentum. It's also been brought up to me, um, which, you know, I can remember when the original Metrolink was was built. Um, and we have done things in phases. And uh, one of the arguments that uh, that I've been hearing a lot lately is that, um, you know, this this uh proposition that we're putting forward right now, um, if this can fund, uh, if this can like get us the money to be able to um, get more uh, federal money, and if this funds just a portion, say, from the new NGA to Cherokee Street, um, that section, then that should eventually uh, will kind of entice the county and entice the, the regional partners um, to invest more in connecting the whole system. And that, that's going to be a challenge because even before County Executive Stanger was in office, I think that the county executive's position, and I'm talking about Charlie Dooley here, was they mm-hmm. wanted a metric expansion to Maryland Heights or mm-hmm. some other parts in the county, and they just weren't very enthusiastic about the North-South Metrolink idea because they didn't see it as serving the county. And, and plus, mm-hmm. the county puts in the most money into the Metrolink system. Right. But, but you know, yeah. I, I, I think that's a that's an obstacle that I don't know is not overcomable, but it's not a not an insignificant one. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I agree 100 percent that the, you know, the county, um, I've, I've said, uh, you know, when this proposition got started and people were asking me about it, um, I, you know, I will admit that I, I'm was on the side of saying like, oh, it's not enough money, nothing will be built, and and why are we doing this without a regional partnership? Why why are we trying to move forward on Metrolink without having the county and the Metro East and, and the region involved in it? Um, but um, as uh, I've been reading more about it and, and re- getting more into the details of it, um, it you know it does seem like a, a lot of people are um, under the the belief that um, that by passing Prop One that we will be able to start the process. We'll be able to start just the, the city um, kind of uh, expansion of it, and then that will hope you know that will tie you know get the metro east and get the county to uh, be able to buy into it um, for the 
for the further expansion for the the, fi- the next phase of it. Um, and then one of the other things about the Prop One is, uh, you know, it, it is being kind of billed as the Metrolink tax, um, but there are a number of other um, components of it. So um, the city of St. Louis has uh, what's called the Choice uh, was a federal the Choice um, Choice Neighborhoods Grant, I believe. Yeah, I believe that's the case. Yeah, and so this is going to do uh, fund what they're they're calling like the Mini Choice, where they'll be able to take some money and put it into um, some of the uh, the worse off neighborhoods for economic development and for um, infrastructure, um, which we highly need. Um, that's one of the things that when I was working um, in the Office of Sustainability, you know, I'm riding my bicycle in North City, and I think a lot of people don't realize the, the degree of um, lack of services that are in areas up there. Um, and so, you know, if we really do want to build our entire city and we really want to make sure that we're taking care of all residents of our city, um, something like this, this uh, mini choice neighborhoods um, funding could go a long way. Um, there's also funding in there for um, youth jobs, uh, for uh, groups that we have such as Slate um, to bring more um, uh, funding to them to be able to provide more training um, in uh, youth, youth programming. Um, so I think there's a number of other components that uh, often get overlooked. Um, and, and I think that the uh, the Metrolink, obviously, is, is the big chunk of it. That's what everyone talks about. Um, but I think we have to look at the entire package and, and see um, what other sort of uh, um, things will be funded through this tax. Now, on uh, Proposition 2, yeah. um, I think that there... I think that there, again, a lot of the opposition to this is is based on the fact that publicly financing stadiums is is controversial. Mm-hmm. I think the other element of opposition is if Prop 1 passes and let's say Proposition 2 fails, that money would go to affordable housing, it would mm-hmm. go to public safety, mm-hmm. it would go to everything that the use tax is currently designated for. If, it, if Proposition 2 passes and Proposition 1 passes, it's going towards the soccer stadium yeah. if we get a team. Yeah. So what's I, I've talked to you before about it. I know the answer to this, but people who haven't talked to you, what's kind of your feeling on this particular proposition? Um, so uh, I am one of those people that uh, believe we have a lot more uh, serious issues in our city other than not having a soccer team. Um, you know, I, I absolutely, you know, I, I listen to a lot of people that say, oh, the, the construction jobs that this is going to bring and the 300 or whatever concession jobs that this is going to bring and it's going to uh, rebuild, you know, the uh, edge, you know, of the, the downtown area. Um, I hear all those things. But when, when it comes down to it, um, you know, I, I've recently heard that, uh, that people that are looking for affordable housing sometimes are on a three- or four-year wait because there's, there isn't affordable housing um, in my neighborhood. Uh, just in the last two weeks, I've watched uh, six of my neighbors be moved, uh, you know, essentially um, pushed out of the neighborhood because uh, the, the apartments that they were renting um, now all of a sudden are, are being are, were sold and now they're going to be turned into townhomes and, um, and people that uh, are on, you know, disabilities, low income, um, the, the, the diversity that, um, that made me move to um, that my neighborhood, um, I see it being pushed out. Um, so I, I would love to see um, more money, more funding going towards uh, the things that actually invest in our people. Um, so whether that's through the um, helping out with affordable housing, whether that's through uh, you know doing, doing more for um, police community relationships, um, you know funding, um, say funding mediators, funding um, uh, you know uh, mental health uh, uh, aspects of, of uh, people being able to really help our community and and do things other than just uh, creating another sports stadium. Um, so I'm I'm not a fan of uh, publicly financed stadiums. 
what have you kind of heard in your um, ward? I mean, I'm assuming your view on that reflects the view of the ward. But are there certain things that the people in the ward are feeling very strongly about? I mean, whether or not they feel strongly about the, you know, number one, Amendment 1, the Metro League mm-hmm. uh, proposal, or just sort of what's your take of what the view is on the ground, and do you expect much high or low turnout on April 4th? Um, you know, I <laughs> I didn't expect as high of a turnout as, as we got in the area on, on the March 7th. Wasn't so. it over 30% in the ninth war? Yeah. Which I think is much higher than 2013, yep. yeah, when I remember, but continue. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so... Uh, um, so what do I hear in the? So I do expect to hire a, a pretty decent turnout, um, but be, and mainly because there are so many propositions and, and amendments and, and so many different uh, financial decisions that we have to make. So I, I think that people will be in, engaged and want to uh, come be a part of that decision. Um, but what do I hear in the neighborhood? So um, during my campaign, you know, I um, we knocked on thousands and thousands of doors, and every every neighbor that I talked to, um, they had you know. Uh, their concerns were safety, um, were public schools, um, were, you know, equity. Um, never once did someone say, I'm going to leave this city unless we get a sports team. So um, although we have a lot of people that, that do believe that, um, you know, that a lot of people that even years ago that thought that keeping the NFL team should have been a priority of the city, there's a lot of people now that think a, a uh, soccer team um, will be uh, beneficial to the city, but it's not their top priority. It's not the thing that concerns them the most. Um, so I, I do think that um, that a lot of people um, throughout my neighborhoods and throughout the Ninth Ward, um, they do want to know what we're going to do to address safety and what we're going to do to address, you know, public, uh, public infrastructure and schools and those items more than soccer. I wanted to touch on the public safety aspect because every time I talked with an aldermanic candidate, they mentioned that it was a major priority. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's different approaches to, to deal with this issue um, because I think that one of the things we're seeing with with the new wave of politicians that are coming, um, a lot of them were influenced a lot by Ferguson and the response mm-hmm. to it. I'm not sure if you're one of them, but I know that you were very close with Bruce Franks, okay. who is a quintessential post-Ferguson politician. Right. And what his approach is not necessarily like he's anti-police, anti-law enforcement. He works with law enforcement all the time, mm-hmm. but he feels that the the relationship between especially the African-American community and police has broken down in the city, and there needs to be bridges to, to change that. The Ninth Ward, I think, is, is about almost half African-American. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. I, I actually, I think it's more. I think it's I, close to 60, 60%. Yeah, I, it's a majority African-American ward. So I wanted to know, mm-hmm. as Alderman, what are you going to do to improve the relations between mm-hmm. the African-American community and the police? And what, what, what would you like to see, if it's Sam Dodson or the new police chief, do mm-hmm. to, to make sure that's a priority? Well, um, you know, I think it, it is a common misconception that people look at uh, people like Bruce Franks or, or even me to some degree and they say, oh, anti-police. That's that's absolutely not true. We're, we're pro-good police and pro-good policing. Um, and so one of the things that I think uh, that I've been talking about uh, during my campaign is that um, we really do need to look at uh, community policing in a different way. So um, when I tell people that, you know, I'm riding my bike or walking around the neighborhoods um, um, and, and the number of things that, that you see and that you witness and that um, you're talking to neighbors and you're talking to them in the streets and in places where they're comfortable, um, you find out a lot more about 
about people than you do driving in a car or just going past them. So one of the things that I really want to push, um, and I know this is going to be something that, you know, we're going to have to find more resources for it, but I really do think that we should have uh, more police officers on foot and on bicycle, and they should be walking, you know, our commercial districts, and they should be um, getting to know the neighbors. Um, so I, I think that uh, there's a number of things that we can do, um, even all the way down to uh, we have the Cherokee Rec Center, you know, um, and Marquette Rec Center, you know, two prominent rec centers uh, between the 9th and the 20th. Um, Cherokee Rec Center right now has a, uh, a police officer's basketball league. Well, you know, those are great ways for um, for neighbors to be able to interact with, with officers um, and, and build respect uh, amongst each other. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, there's... And, and again, this was something that uh, when I was working on Bruce's campaign, that we really talked about how uh, public safety is something, you know, it affects all of us, but we really do have to take a, a new approach to how we look at policing and, and start looking at things like um, um, whether it's the community policing or um, whether it's uh, uh, addressing, you know, the, the, the job situations or education or, or broken families. Um, so trying to figure out, you know, the root causes of crime and being able to address it from those aspects instead of just from um, let's try to police our way and let's try to, you know, lock people up. Um, that's not going to solve anything. We actually have to get to the root causes of crime if we're going to really make a, a big impact on, on public safety. At the risk of putting you in a collision course with the likely new mayor, Uh-oh. she's advocated, you know, adding a lot more police officers. Yeah. About um, 150. Well, uh, but, but still, but that's is what, maybe. that's not an insignificant amount, and mm-hmm. um, it's about seven. You know, what seven per ward? Yeah, so. it's it yeah. is is a you know it's not an insignificant amount. I I know that she's also talked about a more comprehensive acro- approach to public yeah. safety. If you if you listen to her appearance on this show, it was that that's not her only thing she wants to do. She also wants to invest in a lot of programming. Mm-hmm. Um, and and similar aspects to what you're doing, but yeah. do do you think that more police is going to be the an element of the solution to the public safety issue in St. Louis, or is it going to require better relationships, or is it a, is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both, but um, but I absolutely agree that uh, that more police is a part of of our answer, um, because right now when I uh, you know when I'm talking to um, our captain, for instance, uh, you know, he says, hey, I would love to put officers on bicycles. I would love to put people in the streets, but I don't have, I don't have people. I don't have enough people. Um, so I think that, uh, that we are kind of stretching um, our force thin. Um, there's been, uh, I've, I went to a meeting last week where um, there are some officers, because, of, because they don't have enough bodies they have some officers that are that are working 80 to 100 hours a week oh yeah well, yeah and, a lot of a lot of overtime yeah so, a lot so of overtime. the money's being spent mm-hmm so the money's being spent, but then that that is not getting us the results that we want because you know everyone here, everyone out there knows if you're working 100 hours a week, yes. you're not happy with your job. And, and, and interestingly, I was just at a meeting in Ferguson, mm-hmm. and that is one of the problems that they're having. They have 37 police officers. It's down from 54. These mm-hmm. these police officers are working longer hours than before. Mm-hmm. The crime situation, while it is not the most dangerous city in the world, mm-hmm. which has been alleged by the president of the United States. Crime situation there is not insignificant. And you're looking at a city like St. Louis where the crime situation is pretty bad in parts of the south side, parts of the north side. Having people work that much overtime is going to be a problem for, for, for dealing with, with situations of crime. So. Right. Your, your, your decision-making 
you know, is not uh, where it should be when, when you're that stressed out from work and working that hard. So, so that's why I, I do believe that, uh, that we need to be able to um, not only hire more officers. Um, um, another thing that uh, is constantly brought up um, with, with the, uh, the higher-ranking officers and, and the chiefs and all of them is that, um, that the pay disparity between the city and the county is an issue. So um, besides hiring more officers, uh, I think we also need to um, figure out a way that we can actually um, offer our officers a comparable pay um, so that we're not training officers and then losing them in a couple of years to the county, um, which is, is a big problem right now. So, Absolutely. Um, so I think that, you know, besides hiring more officers, uh, trying to pay them better, um, then, you know, obviously if we can get uh, get them back to a, a normal workload. Um, and then if we have normal staffing, then maybe we will be able to start putting uh, officers into more community-involved uh, positions. And, and I think that'll just, they'll help, It'll help the city all together with, uh, um, you know, having more trust between um, people and, and community and officers. So, um, so you know, it is a big, big issue, though. But, um, but there's definitely there's a there's no single thing that we're going to be able to do to stop crime. We have to look at it in every angle. Um, and so that's what I hope to be able to to talk about. How would you characterize your relationship uh, with? the likely new mayor, Lida Cruson. Have you talked to her or dealt with her? Or um, had you publicly endorsed one of her opponents? Um, I did not publicly endorse any uh, candidate. Um, and during the campaign, or during my campaign, uh, I was often asked, uh, you know, who who are you supporting? Uh, um, so I kind of... Uh, you know, my answer was that um, the time that I was working in the Office of Sustainability, I had to work with every candidate that was an alderman. Um, I also had I had worked with Tashara on um, we um, on some different training issues and some financial literacy things. So, um, but I had worked with all of them, and so um, you know. Uh, I, I told people, and I was happy to tell people, like, hey, when it comes to the, the project and my experience with working with them, um, you know, Jeffrey Boyd was great. He, he drove me around his neighborhoods, and we talked about areas for community gardens, and we talked about uh, corners that need to be cleaned up. Um, Lewis Reed was always, you know, he was always helpful to uh, put me in contact with the different departments that I needed to uh, get in contact with. Um, Lida, she had the, uh, the Sunflower Project right. up in Del Mar, and, and I was up there uh, putting a garden in with her and her um, her team up up on uh, Del Mar as part of the Milkweeds for Monarchs program. So I had worked with all of them, um, and I was and I'm was willing to work with whoever was going to win the mayor's race. But um, I made it pretty clear though that you know I was. Um, you know, my campaign, I was going up against an 18-year incumbent. I had uh, a lot of work to do on my own side, and it really, you know, I wasn't in a position to, to come out and endorse yeah. someone and, and break any barriers. So to the original part of the question, how, how have I talked to her? Yes. Um, I'm going to, uh, I'm actually, we're having a um, kind of a unity breakfast uh, this Saturday. Yes. I have a meeting with her on, on Monday, um, and hopefully we could talk about uh, the issues that I see in my ward and, and how uh, we can work together to make sure that we're addressing uh, some of these issues. It's a pretty critical question because in an all-democratic Board of Aldermen. Mm -hmm. It's not really a question of Republicans versus Democrats. Oftentimes it's been split on does the aldermen support the mayor on certain issues and do they not? Mm -hmm. And it's going to be kind of a fluid situation because my sense is that uh, soon to be Mayor Cruz and assuming she wins the general election, 
has fostered some pretty good relationships across different factions. Mm-hmm. I think she's been generally supportive of Mayor Slay's agenda over the years. But I also get a sense that there are a lot of new aldermen that ran in different political circles than her. And her ability to pass legislation through is going to be dependent on whether she can get 15 votes. And I don't think she's going to have as large of numbers as Slay did, at least on paper. But if she works at it and is able to reach across faction lines, she may be able to be successful. That's my observation. Is that a similar thought that you have or am I totally out there? No, I, I agree um, that I think that, you know, uh, she's going to have, a, like you said earlier, a freshman class, um, 11 new people coming in that uh, that they're all going to have their own priorities and they're all going to have their own, um, you know, the things that they want to work on. But uh, when it comes down to it, you know, we're, we were all elected, um, you know, to represent our wards, but then also we were, we were elected because uh, we have to keep the entire city and, and the vision for the entire city and uh, uh, the good of the city always you know, as our priority. So, um, so yes, I absolutely think that uh, Lida is going to be successful um, trying to bring people together. Um, she may have to compromise a little bit more than maybe Mayor Slay did, um, having his kind of core of people to support him. Right. Um, so there may be a little bit more compromise, but I think that's what that's what the city voters wanted right now. I think that's the wave that we've seen of, of new people and new ideas that we finally have to, like, say, hey, we're not just going to rubber stamp whatever comes out the mayor's office, that we're actually going to dive into it and make sure that um, that it is benefiting the whole city and that it's benefiting uh, not just the, the wealthy um, stadium owners, yeah. per se. Or... Just a, a, pi- a parting thought before we end this. I, I was looking at the numbers in 2013 versus 2017. Obviously, Mayor Slay won the ninth ward. Mm-hmm. Tashara Jones won the ninth ward this time around. But even in like heavily white Southwest City, St. Louis wards, I I noticed that if you added the African-American candidates together, like in the 16th ward, which I talk about all the time, Mm -hmm. 40% of the vote, which is unheard of Mm -hmm. in the 16th ward. Places Mm -hmm. like the 14th ward, African-American candidates had a majority over Lida Cruz. And so Mm -hmm. that senses to me the combination of, of, of you winning and also just looking at the voting results. The South Side is not voting as lockstep with just the white right. candidate as they were before. I think exactly. they I think I think things yeah. have changed right. and the Bernie Sanders campaign might have changed things, the Bruce Franks campaign might have changed things. Mm-hmm. Do, is this a new era in South St. Louis politics and South St. Louis is yeah. is a broad area that includes places like your area, places like mine, but did this election showcases a lot of, of the winds of change so to speak? Um I believe so. I mean it's uh you know, we were talking earlier about uh, throwing out this word progressive, which I don't I don't like to always use that word because so many people have a different idea of what it means. But but I, I absolutely think that uh, right now that this election has shown that uh, Ferguson is real. And if you're not willing to um, to look at the Ferguson report and you're not willing to um, to maybe take into consideration some of these things that the Department of Justice suggested, um, you know, a lot of us that are in South St. Louis, uh, we've we've seen for years um, how how uh, our city can be divided. Uh, we sat back and we've watched uh, policies be made 
that um, that disproportionately affect minorities. Um, so I think that 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 is you know um, this is definitely a, a new era in St. Louis where where we are ready to move the entire city forward. We are ready to uh, look at areas um, and look at things uh, um, through a new lens, um, so that uh, that we are making sure that we are. Um, you know, representing everyone in the city and, and taking care of uh, some of the major problems that we have, whether it come from life expectancy, whether it come from uh, health issues, whether it come from education outcomes. We have to look at our entire city here and, and work for the good of the city. And so I, I definitely think that it is, this is the new winds blowing in the city of St. Louis, that we are starting to look at things at how we're going to represent all people, um, you know, especially with, with what's coming in now with, uh, um, you know, with immigrants, you know, um, uh, nationwide, that we have to look at at uh, Cherokee Street is, is probably one of the largest concentrations of the Hispanic population. We have to represent them and we have to go out of our way to make sure that they feel like they are part of our community, that they have a voice in our, our uh, um, political system and, and uh, that we are equally representing everyone. Well, thank you very much for, for coming thank here. You. Yeah, and thank you. And talking for 42 minutes and 42 seconds and in, right. in, in saying that I, uh, more seconds have passed. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would people follow you either on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Uh, well, uh, Dan Gunther, S-T-L. Uh, so D-A-N-G-U-E-N-T-H-E-R-S-T-L. And that is uh, not only Facebook, but also Twitter, um, also email. So we'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Got a sin in the sense what